I'm Lisa Bryant. I'm Leanne Gibbs. And I'm Liam McNicholas. And this is the Early Education Show. A fortnightly look at the policy, politics and practice of Australia's early education sector. National Quality Framework requires educators and services to report on a range of incidents involving children, in particular their health and safety. But the idea of reporting, talking about serious incidents and how services respond is not something that comes up often in the sector. Why don't we talk about this crucial area of practice that affects everyone working with young children? This episode, I'm really excited to introduce an interview that Leanne's conducted with uh, Jenny uh, Hitchens, who's the CEO of Big Fat Smile. We've had Jenny on the podcast before talking about the role of the Pru provider. I'll include a link to that episode. I'd really recommend uh, going back and listening to that. But this interview is fantastic. Leanne and Jenny really talking about that culture of trying to demystify reporting uh, and that we can learn so much from each other in the sector when we talk about sometimes these difficult topics. So uh, please enjoy listening to this episode and we'll see you again in two weeks' time. So um, welcome, Jenny Hutchins. I'm talking with Jenny Hutchins today, who is CEO of Big Fat Smile. Um, And Big Fat Smile is a provider of early childhood education and care, predominantly in the Illawarra region. Welcome, Jenny. Thank you, Leanne. Thank you very much. So thanks for talking today to the Early Education Show. And we're going to be talking about something that you are actually really passionate about and have a lot of experience um, and knowledge in this area. So I know that people will be very keen to hear from you. And we're going to be talking about reporting behaviour. So I will, um, what I'll do is start by asking you how you define reporting behaviour because we, you and I have had a separate discussion about this on a a different matter um, and it came up as an area of, of interest really for um, what we think will be of interest both to um, people who are working within early childhood services and also to those who are leading and managing them. So over to you about what you um, see as reporting behaviour. Yeah, thanks, Leanne. Uh, Leanne, I do want to say up front that these are my views and I'm talking from a provider perspective, obviously, um, not from a regulator or anything like that, but from the CEO of Big Fat Smile. And uh, I'm talking because I've worked across child and family in a number of sectors, and I just noticed such a difference in this sector. So the sector's built on a mandated self-reporting mechanism. And, um, and so it's something I'm just keenly interested in. And what I found when I came to this sector was the silence around reporting about, oh, we had to, I don't hear that, oh, we had to report a serious incident the other day. I want to understand it, unpack it, think about the life lessons in that and how they responded and what they did so we can, I can build my toolkit for my organisation and myself. But what I kind of find is there's not, no forum really to talk about something like that. And so what happens, I think, is at times, and certainly I've felt this as the CEO of an organisation where we take reporting seriously, we've got a really strong framework around compliance and I can talk about that later, but this sense of shame and 
a sense of embarrassment and sense of that we've, you know, done something wrong. And uh, so I, I'm going to take that away, sort of lift that veil and look at how did we come together as a sector and share stories and understandings with the regulator? Please don't think I'm talking about not partnering with the regulator. I am. Uh, so that we can actually uh, reduce ambiguity and build knowledge across the whole sector, whether you're an educator, whether you're a nominated supervisor, whether you're a provider. That's that's kind of the area I'm interested in, the interpretation of reg and law and how it's in mm. reported. Yeah. Yeah, so it's interesting that you um, say that people aren't necessarily talking about it because um, we have a culture of sharing practice in this sector but clearly this is not something that we feel comfortable to be talking about and sharing. I mean, I know there's training and those sorts of things, but probably, I mean, I don't think that I would personally be able to go, oh, yes, I know exactly where to find that. What, what do you think is a bit of this taboo around the open discussions and the discussions about practice around reporting? I, I think it is at times... Potentially how reg and law are interpreted and how you might be perceived. So, for example, if we, if the organisations or if a sector's under-reporting, it's a risk for us, isn't it? Because we're not really understanding or knowing the safety issues that could be prevalent across the sector and plugging those gaps. But over-reporting, if we over over-report, and I'll do that in air inverted commas, you could be perceived as a really poorly performing provider and that can impact on utilisation or occupancy. So I I think there is a perception issue, a parental perception, perception a sectorial perception, mm-hmm. a provider perception about what does this mean. And our nominated supervisors... They take, they carry a huge burden of responsibility and accountability. And I think our job as providers is to make their job safer, to put all the mechanisms mm. in place so that when they go about their daily work, they, they, we've reduced as much human error as possible. So we make their jobs as safe as possible. So I think we're doing ourselves a disservice by not finding these ways to have these forums and conversations to look at building the skill and capacity of organisations through each other. And it is the responsibility of the approved provider and so it is in this area, I suppose it's building capacity and knowledge to be a more effective approved provider as well. Yeah, that's Mm. right. That's right. So then thinking about reporting and one of the things that I was hoping you would um, define for me here is what what's the difference between an allegation and what's a complaint? Oh that's so tricky. <laughs> it's it's one that's tripped us up before I have to say. So an allegation um, you have seven days to report an allegation and if there is an allegation at a centre, that seven days gives you an opportunity to explore uh, the context of the information, validate the information, inform relevant parties, obviously, and do an initial investigation and risk assessment. Um, a complaint, however, you've got 24 hours to um, 
to uh, uh, report, and that triggers a larger internal-external response within a shorter period of time against the information that you got, which might be half, you know, just a small portion of the information you need. It can't be validated in such a short period of time. And I think what it does, at times it causes stress and anxiety and impacts on people's sense of safety and obviously on their immediate workload. And, you know, in conversations with our regulator, what I've found is that there's a very, very fine line between what is an allegation and a complaint. But so we... um, so we're always compliant with the because the interpretation uh, can be interpreted in so many different ways. We have made a internal decision that we make everything a complaint just so that we don't defy the rules of the regulator. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I don't think that, you know, we, we wrestle with that internally. Is that the right decision? Because we know we're having that impact on our organisation. But at the same time, we don't want to defy the regulator either or make or do something that's not right. We're incredibly compliant organisation. Yeah, so compliant. it is really challenging, uh, allegation versus complaints. Mm, yeah, so you've put in kind of additional layer or well, not an additional layer but you're treating these things in a particular way to ensure that you're compliant all the time yes yes we um in this whole process what we've also done is built a compliance system which is automated we also do um spot checks of our centers uh we have um reviews we go and do um audits of all of our centres, quarterly audits, and we give those to the nominated supervisor to identify how they're compliant and not compliant, and that gets um, triggered across the organisation as well. So we take that compliance mechanism really seriously because we want to protect our nominated supervisors. We want to know that they've got all the things that shore them up for success ensure us up for success and hopefully as I said earlier reduce as much human error as possible yeah but it's but that must be hard because it is human right it's a very human area so it's quite challenging I think yeah, it is. It is, Leanne. I remember doing some training with the ombudsman uh, when I was at another organisation, and the delegate from the ombudsman said to all of our staff at the time, "It would be a rare day if you're in this sector and you do not experience an allegation, whether it's um, whether you see something you're concerned about and." are required to report it or there's an allegation against you. What we're trying to do, she said to all of our staff at the time, is demystify this and give you the skills Mm. to address it and actually the skills to improve your practice. And I loved her approach and Mm. that's kind of the approach I argue about how do we build the skills to address any gaps that there might be in this sector so that we reduce the risk and increase the safety for children. So that's kind of the approach. That's why I'd like to go, oh, what kind of serious incidents have you had and how do we how do we share that knowledge? Yeah. Almost a community of practice around reporting really is what you're saying. Yeah, it is. And sometimes you'd see a bit of it actually on um social media on Facebook and the like, people saying, is this a serious incident? Should I report this? And and then you watch all the different um, 
views on that. And that really strikes quite interestingly when you read it to go, oh, there is such a breadth of view about whether it is or is not reportable. Mm. Um, Can I give an example? Mm. Last year during COVID, we saw a spike in what we would call inappropriate discipline, I suppose. And we were so surprised by it. Um, we went to meet with the, the um, federal government and the state government to say, is this a sector-wide issue? Because we recognise that as a sector, we were one of the very few sectors that remained open the whole way through COVID. Our educators rocked up at the door, they unlocked the door and they welcomed people every day during COVID, whereas besides supermarkets, maybe a couple of others, police, we're it, you know. Um, and But what we did see was just um, a, a spike in that. And I wanted to understand, is this just us? And if there is, well, then we've probably got a differential response there. But if this is sector-wide, then there could be a sector response to this. And so I, I went to the regulator and I, I spoke at a, the advisory group to say, are other people experiencing this? Because if you are, I think... This is an area where we could deep dive Mm -hmm. as a sector and put some mechanisms in place for our educators. And that's what we've done internally, built a whole training regime around it. But So that's one of the examples that I just want to say, that's an area where if you raise the veil and go, actually, yeah, we are, we are, we are, right, okay, maybe we could band together and do something together. Maybe we need to turn up the volume of the impact of COVID on our educators. Yeah, I think yeah. that, that, I mean, COVID gave us opportunities for many things and it, in some ways it gave an opportunity to be more honest, I suppose, around some of the challenges because, as you say, it was one of the, um, the, the sector was one of the only, very few that remained in place and operating in the way that it did. So I guess... That was a great opportunity that um, you you were able to take advantage of there. But it, I imagine that that would be in any complex situation, there would be the same outcome, right? So it's serving something that happened during a complex time can be applied in other complex times. Yeah, that's right. That's mm-hmm. right. And it's a, as you point out, it's an opportunity to identify it, address it, review practice, review policy and procedure and build capacity. Mm. And uh, and do you do that as a single unit organisation or with others who are going, actually, we've seen this as well. And then you can look at the root, you know, what are the root causes here mm. and and then build in some mechanisms. So, yeah, because yeah. it's uncomfortable, I suppose, isn't it? It's uncomfortable identifying something like that. But you're right, if you share that... Um, it's possible to address it, I suppose. Yes, yeah. in in a broader environment. Yeah, 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 with other with other people who are resourced. Um, I guess that the I just want to come back to something you talked about before about over-reporting or under-reporting. Um, so you you talked about the the challenges of over-reporting, but what about under-reporting? What do you what do you mean by under-reporting? Oh, I think there's a few things. And I think under-reporting could be caused by um, a lack of knowledge or a fear of reporting other consequences. Could there be media? Is there ambiguity in the requirements or the advice that people are receiving? Um, 
That's what I mean by underreporting people worrying or not not um, potentially interpreting the law or the regs in a different way. So not intentionally underreporting, but it might it might end up that way. So I think one of the um, areas, and I know it's come up in the NQF review, uh, particularly in the Ush space, we know there's increased risks in out-of-school hours mm-hmm. care, for instance. And one of the areas that I hear come up a bit is the transition time between mm-hmm. school and Ush. So has a parent or grandparent swung past and collected little Johnny? Um, has the school thought it's a bus day today and pop school on uh, pop the little person on the on the bus? The risks there are so much bigger, and I'm sure those risks are there for every provider. But and broadly speaking, they're they're reportable. But what are we doing about those risks at an advocacy level and at a sectorial level mm. where we could reduce those transition moments, you know, risk moments? Mm. So they're the kind of things, if we don't report, we're actually losing an opportunity to increase safety. Mm. Um, or if there's a differential reporting methodology, we're, in, we're reducing the opportunity to increase safety for children. So that's... That's kind of where, what I think about it. Yeah. yeah. What, what do you think are the um, differences in reporting uh, in, because I know you, you ha- have um, outside school hours care services and early childhood services. What do you see as the primary differences in the reporting in those spaces? In early learning and care and preschool, you've got a more contained space and so people come through a locked gate, they put in a PIN number, they come in and so there's a more contained environment. Without a school hours care, we're in someone else's space, the gates are open, we've got people walking through the spaces that we don't know. Mm. So... There is, we have a more transient workforce. It is a, it's a, it's a lot harder to manage that space. And I think it's a lot riskier, in my opinion, anyway. So I think there's a great difference in, in reporting, in reporting style and reporting approach and in reporting type as well. So what, um, in thinking about that, then what's the ambiguity there around reporting? Because like you're identifying that, you know, with a, for example, the staffing in outside school hours care can be quite, um, can can move quite a lot and people are in and out of roles. So where, where does this ambiguity become a problem and, and what do you see as the ambiguity in reporting? Uh, I think it's mainly the transition points and I think the ambiguity sits with sometimes it's around the training, the staff who's responsible or accountable as a child in the school's um, uh, care mm. and responsibility at the time or in, are they in hours kind of thing. Mm. So I think there's it's a transition points and it's a relationship with the school who are a third party to the parent. So you've got another player that comes into it as well. And I think that that's where the challenges are. The other thing is between school and out-of-school hours care, we are highly regulated, which I won't argue with at all, 
but schools are not. So the children move from one rules um, set mm. to another. And so it's they have their compliance requirements are different mm. as well. Their rules at school, they might be able to go here, go there, do this, do that. But as soon as they move into the ilch space, their rules change as well. Mm. So what does that then mean for children in those spaces? Well, they could go into the wrong areas of the school, yeah. which are out of bounds. They could they could think that things are okay, that are okay in the school environment, uh, okay in the bush environment. We might we might require children to buddy up to go to the bathrooms, for instance, whereas in school they can scoot off to the bathroom whenever they want. So there's a different uh, rule set between the two that can impede um, and we might go, where's that child? Is that child missing? Have they gone into a space where they shouldn't be? Is that reportable? Right, yeah, yeah I see. So I'm, so I'm sort of following, I'm understanding now what you're saying is that they're living by two sets of rules in the same space and that puts Tricky. additional impact on the staff team and, um, you know, what might yeah. be considered um, what might be considered something to report and what might not be considered yeah. something to report. Yeah. yeah, it's really challenging. Um. So something you've spoken about in the past is the lack of benchmarks and data that's available to refer to. Do you want to um, talk a bit about that? Uh, yeah, I think um, I've said this in other spots as well. I'd love to do some research into this space. You might be up for it, Leanne, <laughs> where we, um, I, we use case studies to kind of understand is, do you read this as reportable and other organisation read it as reportable mm. and layer those case studies with more information to understand at what times people report, how they report, at what point they would report, why they would report the reporting style and type. I just think it'd be fascinating to do that and build that benchmarking across the sector and obviously a sequer have got some data but I'm interested in that qualitative element mm -hmm. so that we can, and it's all about how we can build strategies and approaches to increase the safety of children and our nominated supervisors so that they feel confident in our approach uh, to serious incidents and that are uh, confident in our approach to reporting, actually. Yeah, mm, yeah I guess that, um, I mean, the quant people may differ in agreeing with this but I think the qualitative stuff is what gives us an understanding of the human experience isn't it and yeah and yeah. and also it is possible to look at that in the context of training and qualifications and and all of those things you know yeah. what actually provides support in that area but yes it's those stories that give us a good indication of of yeah. how to then address those challenges um yeah. But speaking of the, the quant data, we've got lovely data from a CEQA. So what's what's there okay. so far for people to access? So they've got a range of data. They've got the data, oh dear, they've got lots of data. They've got data on 
breaches across uh, service times and also the increase in breaches over periods of time. I find that fascinating. Um, the ROGS re report on government services has some information as well and it's always good to look at that. I think as CEQA's data continues to change and be dynamic and it'd be great to, once again, just to interrogate that with peers and explore that a bit more. Yeah, mm. we as soon as we get it, we download it and have a look at it to look at how we're going. Be great to go. Well, your benchmark of reporting is here, which is on the mean of reporting for an average size organisation. But if an organisation was under the benchmark, what does that mean? Or if it's over the benchmark, what does that mean? So it'd be good to kind of explore that piece of work. Yeah, and I guess I'm not an academic though, but oh, but I think I mean you're one of those people that gets down with that data on a Friday night. I know that. But um, it's thinking about, I guess it's useful for you as an organisation to look at the, look at what's happening and then reflect on how things are going within the organisation, I imagine. Yeah, that's right. Mm. That's right. And where we could improve. What mm. is it that we could improve around our processes or our approach? Mm. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything we could do better, more of, less of? Are we interpreting this area correctly, not correctly? And, and the regulator has a, you know, a report, a line that you can ring, which is fantastic as well. So it's it's all about building your capacity of not only um, your senior staff but all your staff in your centres as well because you do want a shout-out and up culture in every centre, in every service, in every person, that if they see something that they don't think is right, that they're shouting out and up about it. Yeah, and getting some perspective on that. Um, yes. So what about that? Then there's some grey areas um, regarding interpretation and, and what is reportable and what is not. So what, what do you find to be the most challenging areas about what's reportable and what is not? I mean, obviously, you've got processes, you've got those, those connections, you've already built those up. But imagine that you were, you know, a, a, someone who had less knowledge. Um, what, what is a grey area there? Um, I can't answer that <laughs> because you're so all over it. One. There's there's no there's no grey area. But I think something you just spoke about was where an educator might say, "Ah, oh, I'm not sure." I mean, what would you? Well, what would what do you think that might be? What could be a not sure area? Uh, how they interact with the child, mm -hmm. and is that okay or not okay? And um, and our view on that is if you're ever unsure, ask, talk to someone and and also that applies to educators in relation to shouting out and up to the next person but also shouting out and up if it is the next person. So empowering people to talk about experiences that they see that they might not think is okay within an organisation's value set or philosophy and uh, because that continues to provide a sense of safety for educators about I can lean on my colleagues, I can also um, protect children on a daily basis and that our, st our parents have a perceived sense of safety for their children. Mm. So our ch And it's also about the voice of the child as well. So how do we hear the voice of the child and how do we listen to what they're saying about their perceptions of safety and well-being too. So it 
is a grey area because it's all perception. It is all about perceptions mm. and it is qualitative and it's all about relationships. But we know from the past that institutions have been unsafe. We know that we had a you know a very long period of time with the Royal Commission in in Australia. So. What we want to do across our sector is create that sense of safety everywhere, mm. be it physical safety, be it well-being safety, be it emotional safety um, and safety around regs and law. We want that sense of safety for parents, for children and for our educators. How can um, organisations use this new sort of child, well, it's not new, but the, the child safe um you know, I, I guess the the framework and all all of those things. You, as we've said, it's a much longer conversation. But just in this mm. kind of opening stages, what's what can people draw to and and lean on in terms of child safe organisations? Uh, I think child safe organisations is a philosophy, and the Royal Commission taught us about the, some of those critical principles that we need to apply to our work and explore. And those principles, are, I think, are, I think they're really well based in evidence and research. And those principles can be applied as soon as a um, an educator starts in your organisation to when they leave and also as soon as a child starts in your organisation and when they leave. I I think child safety starts at the top. I think it starts in the board understanding the feedback that an organisation gets about the wellbeing of children and educators. Uh, it's at my role about reminding everyone about everyone's unique and shared responsibility to be a child safe organisation, it's exploring what that means in, in in eight terms. So, what does that mean to you? If I say a, a organisation is child safe or our centre is child safe, what does that mean? How would I? What would it look like? What would it sound like? What would I see if it was a child safe organisation? How would I hear a child's voice and how would I hear what they wanted to say? So I, I think that it's about creating an environment where it's it's tangible and visible is the well-being and safety of children and that we apply those principles. And what that does is anybody who's got is a, who is a serial perpetrator or is considering entering into these spaces is stopped at the start, mm. is stopped at advertisement, is stopped at interview, is stopped at an induction because they're hearing that this organisation has opened up the importance of sharing our views about the safety and well-being of children. Mm-hmm. I, I guess the um, it's balancing the risk, isn't it, there, of, of all of those things and ensuring that, that the, I suppose, the processes are in, in place to... Um, and and that sort of speaks to the policy area and the, as you say the the high level principles, um, and I, I and I am thinking there that the reporting is just a component of this child safe organisation, yeah. isn't it? That it is. It it is. Mm. Yeah, and that's why it's really important we get it right because you want it's it's a self-reporting mechanism and it's mandated but we want to report because we want this whole sector to be as safe as possible mm. so you want it there but you also want to 
through the reporting mechanisms, continue to unpick where it might be grey or where people have different views and stitch that up so that you get a consistent approach and you work out where the gaps are and plug them. And you might plug them through training, through policy, through procedure, through compliance, audits or checks. There might be different ways that you plug those differences, but you plug them mm. so that you continue to um, build the scaffolding of, of safety and well-being across all of your systems in yeah. your organisation. So the outcome for children is that we have, you know, a child-safe organisation, a, a safe space, um, and that families are reassured of that. What's the outcome for educators in this space? I think that they feel safe as well, that they know expectations. I think um, one of the things educators want to know is, what's not my job? What do you expect of me in my job and how can I do that well? I don't think people come to work, put up their hand and say, I'm going to do a poor job today. I think people want to come to work to excel. And our kind of work is the most special kind of work possible because they're building long-term relationships with children. So how do they do that successfully and well? What are my expectations? How can I do this well? And I think that's what we give educators in in a child safe organisation is how you can do this and do this well. And this is how we provide the framework of safety around you so that you can be successful in your role. Mm, yeah, a great outcome for educators there. And I, I think you know, in some of the qualifications and training, there is not the space to explore these um, issues in depth. I think they're dealt with in the, the broad frame. And in some, it, for some qualifications that might not be at the level that we would love them to be, which we know is the issue, some of these issues may not be covered at all. They could be, you know, uh, to the side. Leanne, that's absolutely spot on. We find that um, as educators come to us, we actually run training on compliance, on regs, on the law, and then we quiz people on it. And they must pass a certain percentage to be able to work mm. uh, with us. So we take that very seriously. And then we've also got uh, additional elements for people in day-to-day -day charge and nominated supervisors that they need to pass because we want to know that they've got they understand the mechanisms and their responsibilities and roles around um, reporting and also around um, being in day-to-day -day charge of, of children in their care. So it's we find that the qualifications don't give that and we must give it up front and we must be ready to give that. So we do a full-on session on that mm. on day one. Well, I guess it is. I mean, that's taking the, the organisation's responsibility seriously, the approved provider, the nominated supervisor. And in the end, the training institution isn't going to be the one that's under the microscope. It's going to no. be the, the provider. That's that's right. And it's not only it's going to be the provider. So what you want is a healthy culture of reporting. You want a healthy culture to say, hold on, this isn't right here. You want that shout out and up culture. You want the culture at the board, you want the culture at the CEO and you want the culture in across the organisation that everyone's focused, they're all focused north and the north, north star is the safety and wellbeing of children. So, And then you're constantly building that knowledge 
to get to have that North Star in focus for everyone mm. in terms of being a child safe organisation. Well, I always love to bring in theoretical perspectives into these um, conversations and um, particularly uh, my favourite theory, which is the theory of practice architectures. And it's looking at all of the components of the arrangements, which include the, the culture and language, the, the resourcing, you know, the policies, the, the um, processes that support and also the, the relationships. And I think when we have all of those things right in an organisation, it's not so much that we're, um, you know, it's not just a person's responsibility, it's actually, you know, the organisation as a whole kind of yeah. unit um, and everybody within that. So um, that's that's the best possible outcome, isn't it, when when all of Absolutely. those things work in sync to keep children safe and to for people to understand um, their role in this as well. So we've got the NQF review um, coming up and uh, I'm assuming that um, Big Fat Smile will respond to that in, in the context of all elements but also in, in the sense of the child safe organisations and the, the outcomes of the um, Royal Commission. Um, what, what would you encourage people, I mean everybody should respond to the NQF review as far as the early education show is um, concerned but what, what do you think are important areas to focus on there Jenny? In terms of the child's the national principles, yeah, yeah, I'd definitely be looking at how you would apply them across the organisation. I'd be work, workshopping them at a board level so the board understood them. I'd be workshopping them at a senior executive level and testing and checking that culture. You want a consistent culture of of safety for children. I'd be looking at well, what does that mean in practice? That would be the first question. So if I was standing in front of you. How would I know that that principle is embedded in your organisation? Mm. What would I see? What would it look like? What's the kind of language? And you used that word before mm. that you would use. Uh, they would be, I would be unpacking it in detail and also understanding um, and what does it mean if we're not? Mm. So what's our action plan to get there? So how do we actually build an action plan to be a child-safe organisation? Because that will continually change. So you want a continuous review and evaluation process so that you can look at um, where can we improve and then how can we continuously improve. Mm. You should have people, so what's your training coming in and what's your sustainable training whilst people are in the organisation. Yeah, because as you say, it is that um, continuous improvement, isn't it? It's a component of continuous yep. improvement. And also there are always new educators, there are, yep. you know, and there's always new people in leadership roles as well. So those that really supports the the um, experience of being a, a child-safe organisation and understanding reporting, understanding yes, what it means right. and how it happens. Yeah. Well, I think that is a great way to end, Jenny, in encouraging people to have these action plans um, around uh, child safe organisations and their reporting. So thank you very much um, for talking to me. And I think that that will give people plenty to think about in terms of reporting, but also um, we've got a great piece of research that we need to do. Uh, I think so. I do think so. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. You have been listening to The Early Education Show. 
You can find show notes and links for this episode and all our other episodes at earlyeducationshow.com. The show is hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs and Liam McNicholas and produced by Liam McNicholas. The music is by Jazar at betterwithmusic.com. Please subscribe, rate and review the show in the Apple Podcast Store. It really helps others find the show. Get in touch with us at Early Edu Show on Facebook and Twitter or send us an email at earlyedushow at gmail.com. See you next time.